This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL and podcast wherever your podcasts are cast. Today, our focus uh, is on foreign affairs. With so much focus on our domestic problems, it's easy to lose sight of the very real and very serious challenges, conflicts and threats that face us around the world. The Biden administration is less than a month old, and it's already being uh, asked to tackle an Iran that could within be within weeks of having the materials to make a nuclear bomb, an aggressive and nuclear-armed Russia that has relentlessly attacked our country in recent years through cyberspace, on, ongoing and tragic warfare in Yemen, and a deep tension in the Strait of Taiwan involving nuclear-armed China. You notice a theme here, which also wields the largest military in the world. In the wake of the Trump administration, our alliances around the world are strained. World institutions are bent to the breaking point. So we've got a lot of challenges to navigate. Our guest today is someone both Matt Robeson and I know well. He's one of the leading experts in the country on these issues. My former colleague, John Tierney, is the executive director at Council for a Livable World, where his work focuses on national security, issues in Congress, nuclear nonproliferation, missile defense, and other areas of peace and security. He's a former nine-term Massachusetts congressman who served on the House Intelligence Committee and chaired the National Security and Foreign Affairs Subcommittee of the Government Oversight and Reform Committee. But these days, he's actually doing something valuable in the world. And we're lucky to have him with us today as our guest. John, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, thank you, Paul. Good to see you and good to see Matt. It's uh, too long between visits, and uh, I'm looking forward to this very much. That's terrific. Um, look, members of Congress and national security leaders know Council for a Livable World really well, but our listeners may not be as familiar as we are. Where did the council come from? What's its mission, and what, what do you do today? Well, thanks for the opportunity to plug. Uh, the the Council for a Liberal World was started by a fellow named Leo Zillard, who is a world-renowned physicist. Uh, and he, along with others, of course, was part of the Manhattan Project. <clears throat> and he got that started and, uh, and then saw what catastrophic results could come uh, from a nuclear weapon uh, in the hands of the wrong people on that and spent the rest of his professional life trying to put that genie back in the bottle. Essentially, what he was trying to do was get physicists and scientists uh, to talk to political leaders everywhere and say, this is not something you want to weaponize, not something you want to use in that sense. Uh, and if you want to have nuclear use on a civil side, that's one thing, but we have to have uh, a, a way for either the world to control this through some central body or just an agreement by everybody not to use it on weapons. And he started, of course, by <clears throat> putting a, a letter of many, many physicists and scientists to Harry Truman, asking him not to use it uh, in Japan because it was unnecessary at that point in time, uh, uh, Russia having just uh, entered the, in the war and, uh, and having pretty much destroyed much of Japan anyway. 
uh, but that didn't have success. But then he would go and, and lobby Congress, uh, educate them, as he would say, with a scientist, a physicist. He became quite well known and quite well respected. In 1962, when the missile crisis happened in Cuba, in Cuba, um, that's when he decided that, in his voice, it, you need more than a sweet, uh, sweet voice of reason to get this done. You got to get political because people were still funding these things, still moving forward, and not being held accountable by uh, individuals, by people, by voters. And so we started this organization. At that time, you will recall, there was public awareness uh, in the Cold War and the threat of a nuclear uh, contest between the United States and Russia and the devastation that could bring. So it was part of all that freeze movement and the large uprising of civilians, both in Russia and the United States throughout the world, in fact. Uh, and over time, it stays constant on that. The Council for Liberal World's mission continues to be the eventual elimination of all nuclear weapons. Uh, in the interim, we certainly seek to reduce the number of weapons uh, and their uh, catastrophic nature and lower the risk of war and nuclear war in particular, uh, but also lower all risk of war generally. Uh, we're involved in making sure the Pentagon budget uh, is spent more intelligently, uh, which means to look at our uh, national security in a broader context than just always throwing money at the military, but looking at it as uh, terms of uh, pandemic threats, uh, environmental and climate change threats, uh, inequality, all of those things that make our society less safe, uh, both domestically and internationally. In fact, you know, there were more lives lost this past year with the coronavirus than all the battles in World War II, uh, including a second round of, uh, of uh, what happened on Pearl Harbor on that, and all the money we spent in the military, which is excessively huge, uh, didn't save any of those lives at all and wouldn't have. Uh, so there's a lot of work for us to, to do, and uh, we're quite involved. We endorse candidates for federal office that we believe will uh, comply with our, our agenda and sympathize with it. Uh, and then once they're in, we lobby the hell out of them. Uh, let them know that we've got 100,000 plus members in our organization that are watching, that contribute to campaigns, that want to hold them accountable. Uh, if they got our endorsement because they said they were going to be reasonable on these issues, then we expect them to be. And we spend a lot of time doing that. So we have both the political aspect of it and the advocacy aspect. So, John, what are the biggest threats to peace in American security today? Well, if you want to take a real general view of it, I think that our failure to uh, give diplomacy the primary position that it deserves. Uh, and that's a, a long stepping off that the Trump administration has taken in four years and destroyed a lot of our relationships, just not with adversaries, but with friends and allies. Uh, and so a lot of that has to be repaired because the real solution to a lot of these problems is political, is diplomatic, it's not military. Uh, whenever we have a military contest in the end, it always resolves, if it's going to resolve, through some diplomatic solution and some acknowledgement of people's concerns and working out the differences and finding some way to reach an, an accord. So we need to repair that whole system. That's the biggest challenge, I think the most immediate on that. In terms of actual threats or existential threats, uh, I think that mistake or miscalculation with a nuclear weapon, you know, I tell people that you know, there are three existential uh, threats to people. One is climate uh, control, obviously climate change. Uh, that's gonna take years and we're trying to fight it out and we've got long range plans, 2035, 2050. The other is pandemic uh, type of situation on that. We've seen that most recently, it's got people's attention and that's gonna be a recurring problem that we have to keep addressing. And the third is nuclear catastrophe. That's about 30 minutes in the making. And that's why it's important to know that it doesn't always mean that you're concerned that some 
world leader that has nuclear capacity is going to go crazy all of a second and make an irrational decision, though Donald Trump led some people to believe that was possible. Uh, that's less likely. That has a, a low risk and a very high consequence. It's more likely there's going to be an accident or a, a miscommunication or a misconception somewhere that results in people thinking they have to use their weapons before somebody else attacks them. And we have many examples of that happening in the world. But just look at uh, you know the, the book Command and Control uh, lays it all out. Eric Schlosser lays out a number of incidents who were just pure mistakes and became real close to having a catastrophe on that. Bombs dropped that just didn't go off you know, because of the safe guys on there, but they went through seven or eight of the nine safe guys before one finally saved everybody. Uh, wrenches dropped into silos that almost set off you know, a, a nuclear weapon in Wyoming. You know, and misreads, as uh, Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense, will tell you, a misread of getting a call in the middle of the night uh, for him people saying, you know, Mr. Secretary, there's 200 missiles coming from Russia and heading in our direction. Uh, we have about 30 minutes to either fire the 400 silo missiles that we have in the middle of this country, or we're probably going to lose them. There probably was targeted. Uh, and then he hung up and was trying to decide how quickly he should call president, the president. But when he got a second call and said, we made a mistake, and there's 2,000 coming, not 200. Oh, my gosh. He hung up from that. He decided not to wake his wife up. It was about 3 in the morning. Uh, and he was about ready to call the president when he got yet another call and said, Mr. Secretary, forget it. It's a mistake. Somebody left a training disk in the computerized system and it misread it. But the fact of the matter is if he had called the president and if there were missiles on the way, they were probably, the whole trip probably took 30 minutes. There were probably only 10 or 15 minutes left on their uh, trajectory. The president would have had to make a decision to either risk exposing all of those weapons to an attack and losing them or firing them off so that they wouldn't be destroyed. In which case, if it was a mistake, then he would have started the war because there's no calling them back on that. So those are the types of situations that I think are the most precarious on that. Uh, the, obviously, you know, we uh, have a lot of tensions with China. I don't think that they're at the point right now where you say like, oh my God, we're gonna go to, to war tomorrow or there's gonna be a nuclear encounter back and forth, uh, but they could escalate. Uh, and people think that, you know, there's a real concern there, but again, diplomacy can go a long way towards opening up channels for discussion and transparency. Uh, in alleviating some of those, uh, those tensions. Russia, of course, has gotten uh, way out of control in terms of its actions in Ukraine, its cyber activities and things of that nature. And it has quite a few of short range nuclear weapons that scares Europe and other countries that they, they might use those. But I don't think anybody really thinks that they would use them purposely unless they thought their country was gonna be overrun on that. So again, you get back to the miscalculation mistake aspect on that. You have North Korea, which I think uh, Kim has proven that he's not absolutely crazy and, and irrational, but there's all sorts of uh, invitation for miscommunication or misconception there on that. So uh, they don't yet have the capacity to really reach us with a fully armed weapon with any uh, real precision uh, and power, but they're heading in that direction if diplomacy doesn't step in and, and take a course there. So there's plenty of places out there that are potential problems, and again, uh, we've just got to get back to the notion of having conversations and dialogue with people, even if they're our adversaries on a lot of different levels. Nuclear uh, situations do not allow for ignoring and, and for not discussing them, just as Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev didn't ignore all the problems that were around when they finally got together in, in the early 1980s uh, on that. So, so they finally both realized that you know, nuclear war uh, cannot be won, so it shouldn't be fought. Uh, and Ronald, for Ronald Reagan, that was a big step. And give him credit for being educable 
uh, and finally coming that this might be the, um, uh, the evil empire. Uh, but on this subject, we have to engage. You know, I, it's funny. Um, uh, you ended talking about Reagan and Gorbachev way back when I worked with an organization called Beyond War. And Beyond War's purpose was to educate uh, about uh, the dangers of thinking that you could solve conflict with nuclear weapons. And in fact, uh, Beyond War had a role in bringing Gorbachev and Reagan together because there was something called the Russian American Institute. And we were able to get to people in the Russian American Institute who had a big influence on uh, Gorbachev. And uh, we actually there was actually um, a good work done in helping to push the two leaders together to realize that, um, you know, when it comes to nuclear weapons, we are one small planet. Um, and uh, a nuclear weapon anywhere is a disaster for everybody everywhere. Yeah, well, that's an incredible story. You know, that they came so close to an agreement to ban all nuclear weapons. Right. And yep. the only thing that stopped that was uh, Ronald Reagan's um, insistence that he wouldn't give up on uh, missile defense. Right. Uh, yep. In which case, when you get into the all of the terrorist theories or whatever, left Russia feeling, well, if they had a defense and it worked, then they could fire off against us and would have no way of deterring them from doing it because we wouldn't threaten them back. And so it unraveled a little bit and we got into a long series of smaller agreements, but we did go from over 70,000 nuclear missiles in, in the world to now between 13 and 14,000, which is substantial. Uh, but things are heating up again in that regard because you know Donald Trump pulling out of agreements and people not having open channels of conversation. So you now have people saying, well, uh, maybe I ought to build a, a better weapon and more of them to overpower the other side and off we go. Yep. So, you know, uh, uh, Trump uh, cozied up to lots of autocrats. It seemed to be his uh, favorite modus operandi. Um, one set of autocrats that he never could really get close to uh, was Iran. Uh, now, the nuclear deal in 2015 wasn't perfect. No deal ever is. Uh, but it did seem to slow Iran's march toward acquiring a nuclear weapon. And uh, President Trump withdrew from that agreement, ratcheted up sanctions in response. Tehran has been increasing its nuclear activities. Um, we just um, uh, were made privy to a confidential report by the United Nations Atomic Agency. Uh, and it said Iran had started uh, producing uranium uh, on February 6th. Estimates of how far they are from a bomb range from a matter of weeks to new Israeli intelligence, suggesting they're at least two years away from producing uh, a nuclear weapon. What's uh, CLW's position on the Iran nuclear deal? And more importantly, what should the path forward be with Iran? Because signing a deal is one thing. What do we how do we follow up? What's the future look like? Well, let me just mention one point, Paul, if I can on that. Is people should realize that whether they're two weeks or two years away from developing a nuclear weapon, weapon uh, they're a bit further away from developing one that can be uh, put to a small enough size to actually be fitted on a nuclear warhead. Uh, and they're a bit longer away from developing a missile that can carry that uh, with any degree of uh, accuracy and throw power to actually reach the United States in, in a way threatening. So it's not a threat of tomorrow, they're gonna to be firing a missile off the United States. It's a longer range thing on that. And as you say, the recent uh, Israeli intelligence two years before they get the weapon down and the missiles, they, they've never really had an intention 
They're now threatening, but they never had an intention to build a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, their concerns are more about their region, uh, and they never quite understood why other countries wouldn't understand their need to want long, uh, short-range and intermediate-range missiles when Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia, amongst others in their neighborhood, who they consider less than friends, have them and are capable of using them against Iran. So they was more of a, a sort of defensive posture. Uh, Donald Trump has tried everything in his power to make it impossible, or at least extraordinarily difficult, for a Biden administration to re-enter the JCPOA, the so-called Iran Agreement. Uh, and you know he did a pretty good job of, of throwing a, a stick in the, in the spokes of the, of the wheels. Um, the, they can be undone, but it's going to be difficult. Uh, Iran has taken certain steps that are reversible. Uh, they have decided to uh, enrich their fuel uh, beyond what it was under the agreement, up to 20%, but 20% is not the 90% you need for developing a bomb. Uh, they've also decided to get, say they're going to get rid of some of the uh, IAEA inspectors, but they haven't quite done it yet. The deadline is, is a little bit in the future. So they can reverse things. Their position, of course, is that, well, Joe Biden just has to get rid of those ridiculous sanctions that Trump put on that were in excess of what the agreement called for. Under the agreement, uh, the United States removed a lot of sanctions, kept some, because there are other things that we're concerned about, whether it's regional um, conflict and, and involvement with uh, terror groups or whatever, or because of their missile program. But we got rid of a lot of them per agreement when they started to make it a long range uh, prospect as opposed to a short range project to be able to get any nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, they want those new uh, sanctions to go away. Uh, Trump, of course, has kept increasing them and increasing them, making it difficult. Uh, and now uh, their legislation, the Iranian legislation, the Mahdi's, has come out and said, look, if you don't do that by a certain period of time, we're going to enrich to a large degree. We're going to get rid of the IAEA inspectors. Uh, we're going to build you know, more missiles. You know, so the threats are there. They're trying to ratchet up. They want the United States to be in a position of having to get rid of the sanctions and then try to join the JCPOA agreement again, which nobody's quite sure what that process is, uh, in all parties to it, the uh, European Union and uh, Germany and uh, Britain, all those other countries have to agree, and Russia included, uh, to let the United States back in, which I feel strongly they would. But there's a process that has to be and gone through. So the path there is for uh, President Biden to both hold his ground, which is, look, um, we'll get rid of the sanctions, but you have to stop doing the additional stuff that you're doing, and who blinks first? Uh, and that's the problem of the situation. I, both of them have staked out their ground to the extreme. So the uh, Iranians are obviously saying like, well, we're not gonna do anything of this thing until you go to the sanctions. And President Biden has said, hey, look, you know, um, I'm not doing anything until you step back into the bounds you should have been in, and then I'll get rid of the sanctions. So it's all a matter of face saving to a certain degree now uh, and trust. You know, how can I trust that you'll do what you say you do if I can do what I do? So that's diplomacy. So hopefully they're staking out their extreme positions and somewhere in the background, uh, they are having conversations about how do we organize this and all of the other parties to the agreement should be part of those conversations because they in a sense can help set the tone and the atmosphere for getting it done one way or the other and, and the trust on that. Now, President Biden has appointed some very good people with knowledge of, of the situation and a history and a background and who have established trust from the Iranians in the past uh, and they're in place. And so hopefully this is going on and 
um, and and we we will hope it moves in that direction. But it's not going to happen overnight, and it's going to take a little while. And you have the Iranian elections pending in June, which you can assume they're going to go hard to the right because people feel very violated by Trump, who, who backed out of the agreement, put them in a terrible uh, financial situation. The, the situation around right now is far from good. Uh, the, the lifestyle and everything has gone totally downhill. And people, as I say, have lost trust in the United States. We all feel the same way. Yeah. And the other problem is, so so if, even if President Biden comes back in and rejoins the agreement and gets rid of all the sanctions, or like, how do we know another president is going to come around in four years and be another Donald Trump? He's really done a lot of damage, you know, internationally and, and many different levels. What on earth do we do about Russia? And I, just to break this down, I mean, it's, it's such a global question. It seems like a good news, bad news situation, right? In one sense, the bad news is turmoil in Russia. They've jailed the primary opposition leader to Vladimir Putin. We're already in something of a quiet war with Russia. They have military units actively attacking us and hacking into our secure government agency systems. And they fueled conflict around the world, including in Syria. On the other hand, despite President Trump stepping back from some of the treaties, some of the agreements that we had with Russia to limit proliferation of nuclear weapons, there has just been an extension of the New START treaty. That does seem to be good news. And so, first of all, let me just ask about that treaty. What is that? How significant is that in the broader picture of dealing with Russia? And then second of all, what is the pathway forward to trying to deal with this massive global challenge? Well, first of all, the, the uh, New START Treaty has been extended. So that's the good news. When, when Trump uh, was not extending it, he was coming up with all sorts of disingenuous offers uh, of negotiating that everybody knew were really just attempts to, to screw it up, right? So they couldn't be negotiated. Wanted to invite China into the conversation or he wouldn't go forward. Why would China want to get into a conversation with two countries, each of whom have 1,550 weapons uh, to China's 350, both of which are not intercontinental ballistic missiles or are shorter range for sure, uh, and further limit its, its position on that. So they knew that was a North starter. Um, so the first thing I think that the President Biden did right was re-enter it without conditions. The provision was set up easy that with the extent of both presidents, uh, they could do it for five years. He only had between January 20th when he got sworn in and February 5 to do it. Uh, I'm happy to say that uh, one of the people that was in the Biden government is was my number two at the Council for the Liberal World was Alex Bell, who uh, <laughs> taken at the administration a nanosecond. Uh, and they've put that in place and it's going forward. And so that's a good thing. What that agreement does is limit the number of intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles and weapons that each country, the United States, can have. Right. So it is the it limits the number of delivery systems and it limits the number of wowheads that can be done. Uh, and they're substantially lower than they had been in the past. Russia and the United States have about 90% of all uh, nuclear weapons. So people should be clear this is a, a big deal. Besides limiting them, the agreement had very good verification uh, protocols so that we have up to 18 inspections a year physically. Uh, each country to the other to go in and look at these things and verify what's there, what's not there, plus whatever you get from your satellite flyovers and a lot of disclosure provisions where they must tell you when they're going to move uh, anything from one place to another and other disclosures that have to be made. And by all accounts, that's been working extraordinarily well and both sides have been in compliance with it. So there really was no reason not to engage this.
Yes, do we need to start having conversations with China and, and other uh, nuclear states? Absolutely. Uh, are there now something other than the types of weapons that were conceived during the initial 2010 New START agreement that have to be discussed, whether it's cyber, or whether it's cruise missiles, or, or you know, all of those, hypersonics? Yes, but why would you get rid of one thing that's working and have nothing as opposed to taking what you have keep it up for five years and build on that going forward, which is exactly what the intentions of the Biden administration are, getting back to the Reagan-Gorbachev acknowledgement that we have a lot of differences, but we have to talk about this issue and we have to do it. So we secured what we had and now we'll start looking forward to what we're gonna do in the future. In the meantime, President Biden, I think started off correctly in his first conversation with Putin saying, hey, it's over. The business about you interfering with our elections and other things on cyber, it's over, pal. The business of you keep thinking you can monkey around in Ukraine without getting any pushback, <clears throat> it's over. And what he can do about it is we have our own cyber capabilities. Nobody wants to get into a cyber conflict back and forth. And that's one of the diplomatic areas where we should be looking forward and engaging everybody, all countries, not just the large countries in size and population, but smaller countries like Iran that have incredible capacity in cyber and other countries as well, because there has to be some agreement amongst people of what we're not gonna do with our offensive uh, capabilities in cyber. So those conversations have to start, but I think President Biden made it very clear that it's over. You're not gonna do this with impunity anymore. And part of what he can do is get the rest of the world to work with the United States and bringing certain pressure to bear on that. Russia wants very much to be part of the world community. They're not gonna get away with that. People are not gonna let them participate and whether it's the banking situation, whether it's travel, what other, other cons diplomatic considerations, they're gonna be frozen out. If the United States takes, again, retakes its leadership role in dealing with the world community and putting pressure on them. Russia's uh, economic situation is horrible. It is not pretty at all. They're not as strong a military or as strong an economy as a lot of people wanna make them out to be, right? They're strong enough to be of concern. Their economy is a concern to them. And it's only getting worse. And it's for the more that oil is less and less important in the economy, the more their situation is going to uh, tumble downward on that. So there are a lot of leverage points that can be used. It needs the, uh, the marshalling of the entire free world to be able to say, all right, we're all going to step in on here. And we're going to not let this behavior go on anymore and work out that way. So I think that's what we're on the path to right now. I don't think Gorbachev is going to be happy. I don't think he's going to be compliant, you know, but it's going to be something that we have to stay firm on and move in that direction. You know, uh, John, just reflecting, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, that's it's okay. You know, I mean, it's not like you've seen one Russian, you've seen them all, but we are dealing with Vladimir Putin, who seemed to uh, have a lot of control over Donald Trump. But uh, what you've just talked about really brings home. Uh, for me, uh, connecting the dots between what you were talking about as the potential for an accidental uh, nuclear uh, catastrophe, uh, together with the fact that that the way in which our uh, uh, IT, the way in which uh, cyberspace now is integrated with defense posture, with offensive uh, uh, weapon control, uh, and the fact of the Russian hacking uh, into the, the deepest structures of our intelligence, of our defense, of our government, uh, and the effect that could have in terms of triggering a potential nuclear catastrophe 
catastrophe makes makes uh, in some ways cyber warfare. Uh, it elevates the importance of dealing with that in the same way that a new start has dealt with nuclear weapons. Yeah. And then technology is important to Paul, as you mentioned. The, it's important. You know, we have a command and control structure uh, in the United States that's uh, able pretty much to determine when there's something coming in our direction. It's not always perfect as we've seen from the mistakes in the past, but it's, it's pretty sophisticated. And if Russia or China or anybody else were to fire something off, chances are really good that we're going to know uh, and have some advanced acknowledgement of that. Russia's system is not so good. All right. They are not as technologically advanced in the United States. They're certainly good, but not as good. So there's probably they might misconceive something uh, as they have in the past. On one occasion, when they thought a, uh, a satellite that was being launched from Norway was actually an attack on them. And but for the fact that one of the lieutenant commanders refused the order to fire back, would have been at war. All right. And would have been a crazy situation. So that technology alone, it, it behooves countries to have a good command and control system so that they can understand these things and, and share information on that basis. Uh, and all of the technology things are a problem. We have, you gotta wanna go too far into the weeds or whatever, but we talked about missile defense uh, and it's a notion that drives me crazy. I've been on this and Matt, you know this from, from working with me and, and I, Paul, you were there when we were doing some of it. It's a system that is never gonna work to the, with the technical accuracy that's needed for any country to base strategic decisions on it. It's just not going to be credible to say that we can stop every missile that's coming in. Yet you had Donald Trump up there saying, you know, well, we can stop 97% of all missiles coming at us. Well, no, you can't. First of all, this wasn't built to stop anything coming from Russia or China. It was built ostensibly to be a shield for a very limited number of weapons that might be fired someday from a North Korea or Iran. Now, Iran doesn't even have a system. And North Korea, as I said, has a budding system, but not there and someday a possible threat, but they also have the capacity now because of four years wasted with Donald Trump and not so much done during the Obama administration because they were in a standoff, they're built up to a situation where they have the ability to build these things with sophisticated decoys or countermeasures so that it's less and less likely that your radars would pick up all the objects and be able to target all the objects and knock them down. And if you have a defense, and even if it did work, the way they beat that is to build more. So people around the world saying, like, I've got a good defense. They just say, okay, well, we'll build more. That's how you get an arms race, and this is where we're heading on that. So, you know, you just need to be sure in your technology that you're moving in the right direction. And these, that's why we had an anti-ballistic missile agreement until George W. Bush tossed it out so we could try to build this so-called defense system. And that's why Russia started building hypersonics and everything else. Because they go like, well, hell, we've got to take our precautions. So these things all have consequences and they all build on each other. Why you have to get back to the table and talk about things, have some transparency, understand everybody's perspective, and then say, how do we lower the risk? How do we take the temperature down? How do we have fewer and fewer weapons that a mistake or misconception can cause a problem with? And how do we give assurances to everybody that are believable and verifiable to move forward? So, so I don't want to cause you or our listeners whiplash by going around the world too much too quickly, but it is a big world full of a lot of uh, threats, conflicts, and challenges. So I want to read you something that was written by a former professor of mine at the Kennedy School, uh, a current fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Bob Blackwell. He just wrote a report in which he said that Taiwan is, quote, becoming the most dangerous flashpoint in the world for a possible war that involves the United States, China, 
and probably other major powers. He argues that the United States should change and clarify its strategy to prevent war over Taiwan, writing, the U.S. strategic objective regarding Taiwan should be to preserve its political and economic autonomy, its dynamism as a free society, and U.S. allied deterrence without triggering a Chinese attack on Taiwan. He calls for more work with allies like Japan to challenge Chinese military moves and help Taiwan defend itself, but put the burden of a widening war on China. This is an incredibly complicated, fraught situation, probably not deeply familiar. We're kind of in the weeds here for our listeners. But what do you advise? What do you make of the situation regarding China, the potential flashpoint with Taiwan, and the potential for a significant armed conflict occurring there? Potential for an arms conflict would be one that was based on mistake, right, or misconception somebody misconstrues somebody else's action on that. Uh, and it's a real possibility. You know, China under Xi is, is more and more determined to assert themselves uh, in a number of different areas, Taiwan being one. Uh, the conversation that was recently held between Xi and, and President Biden was very direct and each staked out their ground. Well, Biden said, you're not going there. And Xi said, we are going there. And you know, that's gonna be a long process to work out. Um, I don't think that China wants a conflict. I don't think that the United States or Taiwan want a conflict. But again, who's going to back down or who's at least going to try to find some common ground on that? The other countries near, whether it's Russia or China or South Korea, uh, they all have a concern about keeping those waterways open and being able to make sure that all of the commerce that goes through there, as well as the military security aspects of it, are available to those who uh, want to keep it and, and use it. Excuse me. So I don't know what the answer is on that, other than you'd better have some pretty good avenues of uh, communication open. Uh, and make sure that there are more than just two parties involved in it so that people can bring group pressure when it's necessary, but also have eyes on everybody that live up to their commitments on that. Uh, there are certain aspects of it that, that the United States may be able to uh, agree with certain uses of the, of the waterways or whatever uh, with China for all countries. You know, what, what is not going to be a place you can interfere with, you know, which commerce and which uh, trips back and forth are not going to be uh, done. But I think uh, unless there's some conversation like that, she is going to keep pushing little by little to try and make it difficult for Taiwan to be independent. Uh, and the United States, of course, depending on how much pressure Congress brings to bear, and they're a player in this too, uh, are going to keep trying to do things to make it very clear that they're not going to give up uh, and supporting another democracy and move in that direction. And that's, you know, there are members of Congress who want to put the finger in the eye of China, which is not necessarily a smart idea. Um, but, you know, they sometimes go out there without thinking of all the ramifications on that. So, it's too complex for me to tell you exactly how it's going to unwind or exactly what's going to be done because it's moving. It's a moving circus all the time. So um, uh, we've been uh, we've been kind of on a travel and leisure tour of uh, international flashpoints and and problems. And I I, I hesitate to to uh, to set the plane down and, and not uh, put it back up in the air. But I'd like to take us to a far flung corner of the world that most Americans uh, may not even think about. And that is uh, over there in the Horn of Africa. The Biden administration recently announced steps to dial back involvement in the conflict in Yemen, uh, which has been a a a, a thorny, a thorny bit of conflict. And it's a complicated situation. But why should Americans care about what happens in Yemen? What's all, what's it about? And what does the council advise about uh, how to deal with that situation? 
Well, the United States should care about what happens over there as, as we would with any country that has a, the hugest humanitarian crisis uh, in the world right now. Uh, so that's a, that's a concern, obviously, that all countries should be worried about and, and be trying to make sure that we can help resolve that area. Uh, more generally, uh, there is some interest, I'd say not nearly as great as it used to be, about making sure that the oil uh, moves through that region of the world and that we have the access to the waterways that move that. But again, that's not something necessarily the United States would go to war over anymore. Uh, you know, it's, there are other sources of energy in that, and I'm not sure that anybody wants to fight over oil in that region anymore, although there'd be some contest. The real problem is you have Saudi Arabia, which is you know forcing its position. Nobody quite understands why it is that uh, the prince decided to make this attack. Uh, I know it's done in the name of the king, but he's pretty much running the, uh, the country over there. Uh, and that it's been uh, done in such a way that I think most people in the United States don't wanna be involved in supplying him with the weapons, uh, the ammunition, and some of the logistical support he's been getting to have the horrific humanitarian results that have been going on in Yemen. So I think you're going to see a great deal of pressure to try and force that matter to a resolution, uh, force the parties to you know, back off from the, from the military aspects of it and get more into a conversation about how they can resolve that and try to put uh, that on a better plane on that. And I think by if doing that, that of stopping the, the logistical support, stopping the weapons going into Saudi Arabia, making it clear that we think the better path is diplomacy, the Biden administration can have an impact on that. I think that others would certainly go around and support it. Um, the Iranians are, you know, are involved in the sense that they were supporting the Houthis. Um, the extent to which they were supporting them originally was far less than I think people accused them of because people were looking for uh, an excuse to get the United States involved and others in the region want to contain Iran, but it has grown. I think in their involvement and support for them over time because you, you push somebody how far enough they do. Uh, but they have reasons to want that to come to an end as well uh, and work on that basis. So it is a serious business. We have to stop the humanitarian suffering that's going on and be involved in that. Uh, Redesignating the Houthis and taking them off the list uh, of sanctioned countries like that allows for humanitarian countries to go in. As long as they were on the list, they were barred from talking uh, to the, the Houthis on that because to do so would be a violation of, of the uh, law. So now they can go in and start talking about getting humanitarian relief in there on the ground and feeding people of that nature. Uh, and other countries can start talking to them about forcing a resolution between Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it opens it up in, in that sense of the way that what Trump's action did was basically just bring everything to a halt. Uh, you know, leave no basis for discussion. He didn't want to you know, put any pressure on Saudi Arabia and he didn't apparently want to do anything that was going to help the humanitarian situation. So Matt, let me just quickly follow up. Um, you know, our relationship with Saudi Arabia has been central to our approach to the Middle East region for a long time. And and there are have been a lot of concerns raised uh, about the relationship. Uh, uh, you know, you go back to uh, 9-11 uh, and the role of the Saudis there. You go uh, forward to the murder and dismembering of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, Washington Post journalist. Uh, you look at their conduct in Yemen. Is it is the Biden administration going to reset uh, relationships with Saudi Arabia? And if so, what are the strategic implications for us? You know, I, I can only guess here because there hasn't been as much public comment on the record about it. But my inclination is to believe that they're going to treat Saudi Arabia uh, 
quite differently than Donald Trump did, and, and maybe even differently than previous presidents have done that, where they've been given a lot of leeway uh, to do pretty much what they want to do because people were so concerned about trying to get them on board with taking pressure off of Israel uh, and <clears throat> not being as con uh, contentious in that regard. I think that this administration has shown some signs uh, that it's not going to tolerate some of the behavior uh, by the, the, uh, the dynasty over there. Uh, and I think that you know, you're going to find them, as I said, in, in the Yemen situation, not being so willing uh, to send them the weapons and the ammunition and things of that support. I think they're going to be more willing to put more pressure on them, try and solve matters regionally with Iran and Israel and other countries in the Middle East uh, and try to stop some of the tension there. Uh, and I think that they're going to probably speak out more often on the Khashoggi and other uh, things that, that this person does. They're not as important in the calculations as the United States as they were at one time. As I said, oil is less and less of a factor, uh, but they also, uh, while they base some troops still, uh, they don't base nearly as many as they have in the past. Uh, and I would argue that it's not necessary anymore that the United States base troops there. We have the capacity to get troops from one point to another in a much better uh, fashion than we ever did before. So it's not necessary for us to have 800 bases around the world at the huge expense uh, that has in money uh, and in creating conflicts and difficulties where, where you're located. Uh, and so the Middle East is one place that we ought to take a serious look at where we have troops stationed and where our involvement is. And Saudi Arabia is a good place to start making an example. We're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. And we need you people to start working to find a solution. I understand the fears that everybody, whether it's Iran, Saudi Arabia, or UAB, and Bahrain, and all of those, but you got to work it out. So I just want to close on, on this question. I. I hope our listeners have been able to pick up something. I, I've known John for a long time, and uh, I think this is pretty evident in listening to him. It's possible to advocate for smarter approaches on security, for, the, for not being as belligerent, and also to be tough at the same time. One doesn't have to be bellicose <laughs> to be tough, which I think is something that our former president uh, mistook, uh, President Trump, often. So you and the Council for a Livable World have consistently advocated for diplomacy, even with unreliable, dangerous adversaries like Kim Jong-un. Could you just kind of give a closing case for our listeners for why that's a smarter path, why that's a better path, even in dealing with dangerous adversaries like uh, the leaders in Iran, like the leaders in North Korea? Why is the way of talk and diplomacy the better way to go. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. But I'm going to loop in a little bit of what I said earlier. Is no matter how many wars we have in this world, they're always resolved in the end by security contests. You know, they're brought to a conclusion eventually through diplomacy and working out some differences and finding a way for the parties to separate on that. Uh, this happened since World War II, and it's gone on in that degree. The other is the consequences of the size of a catastrophe of a nuclear war is exactly as Reagan and Gorbachev said. You cannot be one. So it ought not to be fought and nobody knows what's gonna escalate. So that there's every reason to not do something stupid on that. The only way that you can make sure that nobody's gonna do something stupid uh, or take a rash action or whatever is to know what that person's doing and give them assurances of some belief that they're not in danger. Because most people are acting out of some fear of what's gonna to happen to them or their country. So that means you have to have open channels of communication. It doesn't mean that you can't have contests, that you can't have differences. Uh, and try to work them on a different one. But it does mean that on the most serious existential issues, you have to talk about reducing the nuclear threat, 
You have to talk about jointly dealing with uh, climate change. You have to talk about jointly dealing with the pandemic and other bio uh, problems on that nature. So there are some things that require conversation. You can't just shut it down and expect that the world's going to be a better place. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with Matt Robeson, John Tierney, and the Council for Livable World. Thank you so much for joining us. We are fortunate to have you in a position for advocating better ways to resolve conflict around the world. Thanks for being on. A pleasure to be with you both. Thank you.